From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we're going to be coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about this election, the campaign, what might happen, what does happen, and what it means. And we're going to keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week, my guest is the philosopher Ray Langton, and I'm going to be talking to her about freedom of speech. What happens to a democracy when the right to free expression turns nasty and liberal freedoms are used to abuse others, to incite violence or simply to cause deep offence? Is the abuse of free speech a threat to democracy or is it a sign of democracy in robust action? Ray Langton will be telling us about the Charlie Hebdo affair and what it can teach us about the limits of free speech. It's not the business of the state to protect speech that might or might not be blasphemous. Blasphemy and political satire are not the same thing. And how hard it is to strike the right balance in the age of the internet. Is it really an equal playing field on the internet? And I think we'd have to agree it isn't. Stay tuned to hear more. Before we turn to the philosophy of free expression, let's talk about some of the ways it's been used and abused in the current campaign. In the past few days, attention has turned to the leaders' wives, and in particular to Justine Thornton, aka Mrs Ed Miliband, who was photographed with her husband in the kitchen of her home, which turned out to be her second kitchen. This has provoked howls of outrage and mockery from the press. One person who attacked Justine Thornton is Sarah Vine, columnist for the Daily Mail and also herself a politician's wife. She's married to Michael Gove, who was Education Secretary and is now the Conservative Party's chief whip. The sight of one politician's wife laying into another produced a remarkable encounter on the BBC last week when two senior political figures, Alan Johnson on the Labour side and Michael Portillo on the Conservative side, together attacked Sarah Vine for meeting out to others the kind of abuse that she must have suffered herself. How could she do it? Sarah Vine's unabashed answer was that she was paid to do it. She's a journalist. But she also pointed out to the two politicians that they ought to read what readers say beneath the line on newspaper columns, which often turns out to be far more vitriolic and abusive than anything that the journalists meet out. I'm joined by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brooke on political theory. Chris, you saw that interview. Who do you think are the real sinners here with all this abuse being dished out? Is it the politicians? Is it the journalists? Or is it the general public? I, I think in this particular case, the culprit is clearly the Daily Mail. The article that Sarah Vine wrote about Justine Miliband and about Ed Miliband is a nasty piece of work, and she gets called out on that in the television interview with uh, Michael Portello, Andrew Neil, and Alan Johnson. What I think is interesting about this case is that it's coming from Sarah Vine writing in the Daily Mail. Sarah Vine is the wife of a high-profile and quite controversial politician, and if she's signalling that she thinks this kind of nastiness is fair game for the spouses of politicians, that's quite striking. The other thing that stands out for me is that this is in the Daily Mail, when the Daily Mail calls... Ed Miliband and people associated with him, aliens. Readers like me with long memories remember the campaign the Daily Mail waged against Jewish migration to this country over 100 years ago. They were stigmatised as aliens, but some of what the Daily Mail printed in those days about Jewish aliens coming to this country is really repulsive stuff, and I think the Daily Mail should be much more careful when it uses this kind of language about a Jewish politician. 
So that's a pretty clear answer who the villains are here. Chris thinks it's the newspapers. One of the things that Sarah Vine said, though, to the two politicians who were giving her a pretty hard time was you were the last generation of politicians who didn't know what the voters really thought. You just got a post bag. You might have heard a bit of anger, but you can now read below the line on a newspaper article and see that the kind of filth that is spouted by ordinary people about celebrities and politicians is far worse than anything that the journalists write. Has she, has she got a point there? I don't think she has any point at all. This is almost a case of saying he started it, she started it. Just because, unfortunately, we are enabled now to see some people's perspective of I'm on the internet, I'm relatively anonymous, I can say whatever I want to say, doesn't mean that a journalist who's supposed to have some version of journalistic standards should step below the line themselves and approach it in that manner. So she would argue that she didn't step below the line in that way. One of her responses to their grilling is that she's a journalist, she's paid to do this stuff. She thought it was funny, other people would find it offensive, and Chris has pointed out that the offence may be something that actually you have to really look hard to see what the real offence is here. But journalists, it's what they do. It's forgotten relatively quickly. But there's this new kind of subtext of real nastiness that is there all the time. And it is coming from the voters. You don't think that this has changed the dynamic of politics? Because you have to say people like Alan Johnson and Michael Portillo, they're probably, for most of their careers, they were slightly protected from the kind of nastiness that now comes from ordinary people. That's true. But many journalists, uh, you will see saying to themselves and saying quite openly about their pieces, I never look below the line anymore. Because there's no point. If you know that in the comment section, what you're getting is a left of the bell curve, small set of voices which want to take this aggressive, nasty, brutish, end of the world kind of attitude to commentary, you have to just leave that alone. There's no point in going there. And so for me, I, I think all of the argumentation around this is very, very simple. This is a person who's trying to defend selling the newspaper by selling a story that they think is essentially a titillation. And they're not owning up to the fact that what they're doing is destroying any sense of actual commentary on an election. So what happens below the line, Helen, is no excuse. Ed Miliband could also say that he's in a fairly familiar position for any left or leftish politician in this country, which is that almost all the press is against him. And even the press that's meant to be on his side, including The Guardian, is slightly tortured and torn about whether they should support him or not. Do the Milibands have a right to feel persecuted by the press beyond this kind of titillating stuff, that there's just a structural bias against them? The nastiness is coming one way and it's coming from one side against the other. I think that um, Sarah Vine's piece was very unpleasant, including the attitude that she displayed towards Generation X women's desire to pursue careers. But I somewhat disagree with Chris and Finbar in thinking that the issue of what goes on below the line is not something that the politicians should engage with. As you said, these are voters and these are the opinions that they have, and many of them are very angry. And politicians and journalists not engaging in some sense with what they say. It's not going to make that anger go away. It's simply a symptom of the fact of the crisis of trust that there seems to be in politicians, in the elites more generally, that it does include the media. It's part of the political world in which we now live and nothing that any of us think about it in a judgmental sense is going to make it go away. As for Miliband himself, I think that he certainly has a problem in that various of the newspapers, not least I think the Times, is gunning for him because of Leveson. At the same time, the main reason why he's in a difficult position with the media is, as I've said several times before, 
here is that he's not very good at being leader of the Labour Party. He's not a credible alternative prime minister, so he's going to get this kind of criticism. And in some sense, the, the significant thing about the kitchen story, I thought, was actually how bad his communications people were in not realising that this kitchen was going to be a story. He wasted four days talking about his kitchen and then his second kitchen and potentially his third kitchen. No, we're, not, not we're not going to get on to the third kitchen. <laughs> it may exist, but we're not going to speculate about that. If I could just take you back a bit... Uh, you mentioned Leveson, and for people listening to this who may have forgotten or people listening overseas, just to make clear, Leveson means the Leveson inquiry into the press and press standards that took place a couple of years ago and that has produced another argument and fault line in British politics between the people who want to regulate the press by means of legislation and the people who still believe that the press can regulate itself. And of course, a lot of the newspapers, including the Times, are on the side of self-regulation. This is the first post-Leveson election campaign. We can assume some things have changed. I think we can assume they're not hacking the phones of the politicians anymore. Let's hope that that's true. But has anything else changed? Do you have any sense that there's any kind of restraint here in the light of the fact that press and press ethics have themselves been a really important part of political argument in the last couple of years? Not really, no. I think if you look at each of the newspapers, that they're behaving in exactly the same way that they behaved last time in terms of the sides that they've taken, and they're saying pretty predictable things. It's actually, as well, if you think about it, quite difficult to see how the post-Leveson environment would actually impact on what goes on in an election. If you think back to what Leveson was about, none of the particularly damning things that came out about press behaviour were actually about the conduct of journalists during an election. It was, it was essentially about a celebrity culture and a world of intrusion into privacy that has a very important set of political consequences, Finbar, but isn't actually about political argument and election campaigning. Not at all. But there's a really important point, I think, that Helen raised, which is Ed Middleband wasted some time talking about his kitchen, but he also invited it in. He invited it in in a bad way. And the only line in the Sarah Vine piece where you go, hmm, OK, I have to listen to you there, because they did have a choice. They had a choice not to invite any of the media in to take a photograph of the kitchen at the same time. Did they really have a choice? So you're saying they had a choice not to invite them into the kitchen and the mm-hmm. second kitchen was possibly a mistake. But do politicians really have a choice anymore about the extent to which they present themselves to the public? Because this is also something that comes up in the conversation between Portillo Johnson and yep. Sarah Vine. Do politicians have any choice as to whether they present themselves to the public as family people with families, show the families, show the kids, show themselves in a cuddly light? Can you can you stand for election and not do that? You do have a choice. There is a big conversation to be had about whether or not, for example, Nick Clegg saying you'll never see my children is damaging him in any way, shape or form. Or people actually respond to that and go, good on you, Nick. Well done. The children shouldn't be seen in any photo opportunity. If they are saying that, that's not being reflected in the opinion polls, but the opinion polls are about something completely different. Yeah, yeah. But the opinion polls for Nick Clegg are something far, far away from that part of it. So some may say Nick Clegg is freed up to say that, and he can say that without any worry about... losing any votes because he hasn't got many votes to lose. That's fine. But I do think that you should actually be taking a step back as a political leader and saying, okay, hold on a second... I still do have a choice because I have the biggest microphone available, especially for the party in power, especially for Cameron. You know, you turn up and 100 microphones are going to be underneath your nose. 
you get to set the agenda in concert with the media, in concert with the public. This isn't one-way traffic. This isn't the media setting the terms of engagement wholly. This is an ongoing debate conversation, call it what you will. So yeah, I do think there are some choices to be made. Chris, do you agree with that? I don't want to be uh, dismissive of the views of any of our panel here, but that sounds to me a tiny bit naive that the Prime Minister can set the tone here by maybe drawing a line and saying this stuff is off limits. I think he might be able to do that kind of thing, but I don't think we're going to get much of that kind of thing from this Prime Minister. Remember, the only job that Mr Cameron has had outside of politics was as a PR guy, and he's a consummate PR guy in his politics, in his media strategy. It's all about finding ways of getting through to the next deadline, getting through to the next week. It's all ongoing crisis management. Cameron was giving an interview to the Evening Standard just the other day in which he talks about his kitchen. It's all very carefully orchestrated and very clever PR strategy. I don't think Mr. Cameron is the kind of person who's going to help to elevate the tone of politics over the long run. That's just not the kind of thing that he does. And just one final comment on this before we talk to Ray Langton, who, among other things, uh, gave written evidence to the Leveson Inquiry, and she's going to be talking about some of the deep philosophical issues here. So I'm going to stick to stuff that might seem more on the surface, but I still think is important, which is we've been having a conversation here about the use and abuse of free speech, about the endless conflict between politicians and journalists, about who's nastier about whom. We've only been talking about newspapers, and it is striking that this is meant to be the age when newspapers are dying. And often it feels a bit like that. Readership figures are down. They're trying to find new sources of revenue. But one of the striking things about an election campaign is just how important newspapers still seem to be. So unless I'm missing something, there still seems to be a newspaper-driven campaign. Helen, am I, am I wrong? I don't think that you're wrong, but I don't think it's exclusively a newspaper-driven campaign, or even perhaps primarily a newspaper-driven campaign. And I think that we won't really see the importance of social media, perhaps particularly um, Twitter, until we actually get into the election campaign itself. There will be a lot of instant reaction to that, and newspapers do not do instant reaction in the same way in which Twitter and Facebook do. We are in the war before the war. The real campaign hasn't started, but they are campaigning full-on now. So is this the point where newspapers have their moment and, and when we get closer to event-driven campaigning politics, instant reaction becomes more important? I think one of the key things is that the newspapers are tooled up to have people on site and actually calling it a newspaper election seems to think that it's all about print. The newspaper's web presence is really, really important. The channel of delivery has changed, but the personnel who are delivering it are the same. Chris, is that right? I think that's right. And just to return to the conversation earlier about below-the-line comments, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the comment boxes that newspapers run are run by newspapers in order to maximise their advertising revenue. The fact that they're an open sewer, a free-for-all, is because that's what keeps enough people coming back and clicking on the pages to reload the pages to get the hits that can be reported to the advertisers. So there isn't this clean separation of the world of the journalists and the world of the commenters. It's part of this awkward death grip in a declining industry, and it's kind of interesting to watch. Thanks to Helen, Finbar and Chris. We'll be talking with them some more later in the show. But before that, I spoke to Ray Langton about the complex problem of hate speech. What are the principles that should govern how a democracy deals with the people who say the most unpleasant things? We began by trying to define the terms of the problem. What exactly is hate speech? Hate speech can sometimes be an attack on an individual person. 
There's another kind of hate speech which I would describe as more like propaganda. For instance, Julius Streicher, the Nazi publisher, published Der Sturmer, which was not in the first instance a kind of assault on individual Jewish people. It was propaganda trying to promote hatred. It was effective enough that Julius Streicher, during the Nuremberg trials was found guilty of hate crimes and was condemned to death. So it's, we sometimes forget that at certain points in history, hate speech has been thought so serious that someone could be condemned to death for it. It's a far cry from thinking, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I think that one place where you see a connection between hate speech and violence is something that you might not even think of as hate speech in the first place. And that's a speech that objectifies women in the media. If it's speech that is promoting the view that women are sexual targets, if women are there and it's okay to treat them in violent and disrespectful ways, or most seriously, if it actually silences women's speech by making it harder for women to refuse or consent to sex by undermining women's powers to speak. That works like hate speech in helping promote or legitimate violence, just as effectively as speech that does it more directly. And it's more insidious, too, because it's much harder to uh, answer. And do you think, I think a lot of people will notice that the kind of stuff you've just been talking about there is everywhere in the age of Twitter. I mean, one of the striking things that people have noticed about the post-information revolution age is just how much misogyny there is that just spreads almost like wildfire around particular people or around particular groups. Do you see this problem getting worse for us, for, for our kinds of societies? When we think about the internet, we often think of it as this incredible vehicle for freedom and how anyone can now have a voice in the public debate. But when we look harder at who is speaking and how they're speaking. One way you can think about that is by thinking, well, who is speaking? Let's count the bodies. Are there just as many women as men contributing to debates on the internet? Are there just as many people from immigrant communities and asylum seeker communities as from established communities. Is it really an equal playing field on the internet? And I think we'd have to agree it isn't a very equal... No, all the evidence is it isn't. That's Even right. something as seemingly yeah. benign as Wikipedia, when you actually look at it, it's on the whole edited by men, it's produced by men, and the subjects mm. are on the whole men as well. Women don't really feature. That's not They're not subject to hate speech on Wikipedia, they're just absent. Well, I think that there are efforts to make space for people who don't have as much of a voice on the internet. And one interesting project that I heard about recently, it's the idea of global expressive rights. And it's the thought that where you have a particular group being targeted by hate speakers, one thing that institutions and states can do, instead of squashing the hate speech or censoring it or penalising it, is simply create more opportunities for members of that group to speak back. I certainly don't envy my Newnham colleague, Mary Beard, what she has been through. I think she's responded incredibly, actually, courageously and inventively. And just um, to say to yes. people who don't know, that yeah. one of the things that she did was she tracked down the people who were attacking her with this stuff and she actually engaged in a dialogue with them. She actually spoke with them in person and is now completely on speaking terms with them. And um, I think it's been quite a learning experience for them, but also 
in fact, for all of us, about different ways in which you can sometimes confront bad speech with more speech. Most people in the sort of democracy that we are lucky to live in, one of the main points of free speech we need to think about is knowledge. We're not just thinking about the knowledge of the colour of Celebrity A's underwear or something. And one sort of knowledge that's especially important in a democracy is going to be the knowledge of what the government is doing and knowledge of what our institutions are doing. And if we have a free press that enables us to, as we say in Australia, to keep the bastards honest, that's a crucial role for the media and in particular for the freedom of the press, which matters for free speech because it matters for us both as speakers contributing to the press and as hearers listening to what the press can tell us about those in power, because otherwise otherwise it's not a democracy. If you don't know what's going on, then you can't contribute to controlling what's going on. So we need to hear it because we want to know whether it's true and that means it might be false. Mm-hmm. What about if, it's, if we find it thoroughly offensive. Certain speech is harmful partly because of its effects but partly because of what it is in itself in seeking to legitimate certain effects. So when we're thinking about hate speech are we thinking of speech that is somehow contributing to a political debate even if it's mistaken or are we thinking about speech that is inflammatory? The issue is not offence. The issue is going to be about harm and then the question is what sort of harm harm in some straightforward physical sense that might be legitimated by the speech act or harm to one's standing as a citizen so harm to equality the more inferior you're ranked and the more subhuman you are ranked the more legitimate it will seem to treat you badly and violently so can can we try and relate it to an example i'm sure people will have in their mind when they hear this stuff which is the Charlie Hebdo, right. I don't know what to call it, the tragedy, the affair, the case, but everyone yes. knows what we're talking about here, yes. where some inflammatory publications yeah. Yeah. produced an act of violence. And the question is, is it the job of the state to step in earlier and prevent that kind of publication of what some people considered extremely offensive material before it leads to the violence, or is it the price we pay for free speech? So it is very hard to do justice to this example. I do think, in general, political satire is very important political speech and it's absolutely vital. It's part of the function of the free press in um, promoting dialogue about our leaders. There are two things I want to ask about this case. One thing is, was it political satire? Or was it something else? And the other is, are we talking about possible constraints on it that come from the state or possibly from somewhere else? One thing it was described as was blasphemy. The concept of blasphemy is very problematic because in that particular case, any image of Muhammad whether satirical or praising, would have, strictly speaking, violated, so I understand it, the blasphemy rule. That suggests to me that the problem with it wasn't that it was political satire, but that it violated a religious blasphemy rule. And my own view is that it's not the business of the state to protect speech that might or might not be blasphemous, 
I just want to say that blasphemy and political satire are not, are not the same thing. And when you say, well, the blasphemy was offensive, now we're shifting the target of the harm, not to some god who might or might not exist who's been, <laughs> who's been affronted by the speech, but rather to a group of people whose sensibilities are offended. That's not the same as feeling offended. I don't see that there's a way to have restrictions on speech that certain people think is wrong for religious reasons, where that speech doesn't do some substantive harm, for instance, harm to uh, equality, damage to equality, or promoting violence, and so forth. But this is coming from a certain liberal perspective, which is actually, you know, probably quite at odds with the vision of the those who were so angry about those images. And do you think that um, that, that yeah. barrier can be breached? Is there a gulf of understanding here about the sorts of things we've been talking about? What counts as harm? What counts as offence? What counts as a suitable role for the state? Which is different from traditional liberal arguments that we're talking about a gulf within liberal societies between the liberals and the people who think about it differently. Yeah. Is that gulf too wide now? I think there are two issues. One is that, that there is a wide gulf, but it's always been there. It's always been a central question for liberal political philosophy, how to incorporate the pluralism and diversity and the respect for different opinions that's at the heart of liberalism, at the same time as doing justice to the profoundly anti-pluralistic and visions that each member of those diverse groups might well hold. So all so, liberal societies so, have had illiberal people in them. And they've all had to think about how to accommodate them. Well, I think that it's not just illiberal people, but from the point of view of each religion, all of the other religions are wrong. It's more than just uh, illiberalism. So, so, and from the point of view of each moral view, the other views are mistaken. But, of course... When it comes to specific religious views, that's exactly the sort of thing that the state shouldn't be taking a stand on. I'm not saying the state should be neutral, full stop, because that would be incompatible with the values that are central to liberalism, as well, to democracy, to equality, to freedom of speech itself. Free speech matters because, well, I said knowledge before, knowledge and equality and liberty, these all matter in a democracy. So speech that is promoting knowledge, that is promoting equality, that is not restricting the liberty or equality of others, this is going to have priority over other sorts of speech if those values are, first of all, central to democracy as such, and second, are central to the value of free speech as such. So what that means um, is that hate speech will not be so protected, because we'll need to think, you know, what does this speech contribute to the values that are at the heart of democracy itself and at the heart of the value of free speech itself? So can I relate it then to two practical issues that are not central to this election campaign, but are there on the fringes of British democracy at the moment and very important issues. One is the legislation that's currently in its final stages going through the House of Lords relating to anti-terrorism and security. And one of the things that that legislation is proposing is that extremism should be defined as something which goes against British values. And that includes acts of speech, arguments, um, statements that attack democracy, that democracy can't allow certain kinds of 
forms of speech which are anti-democratic, that, mm-hmm. that is, the sort of extremism that has a connection to real violence, terrorism and so on. Mm-hmm. Does this sound to you like an overreaction? You, you said democracies Sorry. have to stand up for their own values, mm-hmm. but there is a point at which when democracies defend themselves against anti-democratic mm-hmm. argument, it looks itself anti-democratic because, as you also said, democracies have to tolerate a wide variety of opinions. Mm. Often one finds in discussions about bad speech that you should just... Of course, let people speak and just think the bad speech can be driven out by good speech. I would love it if that were the case. I am dubious that we have the conditions where that is going to hold very easily. I mean, the conditions would be a certain sort of publicity for the speech. It would be a certain sort of reasonableness for the speech. It's going to be speech that's contributing to public debate rather than speech that's being shouted at the top of your lungs in an inflammatory way to a partisan crowd. It's harder and harder to distinguish those two different contexts in, obviously, in an internet age. One question is, would it be legitimate for the government to restrict it? And another question is, would it be prudent? And I don't know the answer to the prudence question. Personally, I think it actually would not be in conflict with liberal principles to restrict it. I think it it might not be effective. I do think it's also worth thinking about other measures. One possible solution to the problem of bad speech is not just squashing the bad speech, but creating opportunities for other speakers. So in practice, that might mean creating opportunities, and this will be, you know, cross-tribal speech, speech that goes across boundaries, which is going to probably be way more effective than the heavy hand of the law. If you get speakers who are closer in tribal identity, I mean tribal in the very loose sense of, you know, a political group identity, because we listen much more to speakers who we feel we have something in common with. And there are always dangers when the speech seems to be coming from something very remote, that it's perceived then as alien and as autonomy denying and and then that might it well exacerbate the problem and you could say that the the new technology which both creates the problem also has possible solutions to the problem the new avenues for expression are there the same thing that's allowing certain opinions to spread like wildfire across the internet same technology also produces new ways that people can be heard I think that that's true. I'm not sure how optimistic to be about those opportunities. If you're thinking about the point of free speech and you have all of these ideals that I've been talking about, about knowledge and equality and liberty, um, and then you think about what most of the speech around us is doing, most of it's got nothing to do with that. you know. And most of it is not being put forward in the search of knowledge. Most of it's probably being put forward in the search of money. When you think about the amount of speech that bombards us every day, it's not... Most in... of it is actually advertising. Yeah, most of it's advertising. So most of it's it's there to, to try and get money rather than get knowledge. So I'm not saying out goes advertising. I'm saying we need to think of what we can do to make a climate where more speakers can have voices and talk more about what matters because that's what democracy is about. And it doesn't matter that a lot of the speech around us isn't in the service of those ideals. I do think it means that that sort of speech is not the sort of speech that's protected by free speech. But we need to make more opportunities for the speech that really matters. So so in that light, then, can I ask you about another acute question of contemporary British politics? You gave evidence to the Leveson inquiry. Mm. You'll know that we've been through a period of 
a lot of criticism and also a certain amount of self-criticism on the part of the press, probably more criticism than self-criticism. And there's now a sense post-Leveson that nothing much really has changed Mm. and that the British press, it's probably moderated its behaviour a bit and the British press always says this doesn't need legislation, this is something that can be self-regulating. Where are you on the optimism-pessimism divide in relation to the British press? Do you think that some of the harms that the press caused and that Leveson was set up to investigate have been lessened in recent years or do you think the British press is as bad as ever? My concern is that the incentive structure is far from ideal when it comes to what matters to free speech. One of the most important things that matters to free speech is making sure we can get knowledge about our political situation. And that doesn't just mean talking politics, but it means making sure there's no corruption, there's no sort of behind-the-scenes collaboration, which means that inconvenient truths don't come out. There's that positive role for the media that really needs to be very, very healthy in a democracy, and I'm not convinced that that positive part is there. And then there's the negative part. So it's so easy for the media to seriously seriously harm individuals and to seriously harm groups uh, through something like stalking. Sometimes people talk about the public right to know. There's no such thing as the public right to know. Of course, there's an important goal of knowledge to be achieved, but it's not just any old knowledge. It's not about the, you know, sexual history of someone who might be coming up for testifying at a rape trial. And there is this huge imbalance of of power between a newspaper and an individual Mm. that if if the individual goes after the newspaper, it's quite hard for the individual to lay a blow on the newspaper. If a newspaper goes after an individual, the individual can be steamrolled in an instant. There's also an imbalance at the level of, you know, ontology, if you like. So you have two different sorts of being. You have an institution and you have a human being. And when we're thinking about free speech, we're thinking about uh, something that is for human beings. It's not about a media conglomerate. If they have freedom of the press, it's because what they do helps ordinary people have free speech or have the knowledge they need to participate in democracy. The other part of the media ethics story is treatment of not just of individuals, but also of uh, groups. And this came up in the Leverson inquiry. It's very easy for the media to make money by selling prejudice. For instance, there was a tabloid headline that said, and I saw this in the context of evidence presented to the Leverson inquiry, asylum seekers barbecue the Queen's swans. It doesn't say how many asylum seekers. It turned out that not even one had barbecued any swan, as far as anyone could tell. No asylum seekers, no swans. No asylum seekers, no swans. Headline speak very often uses these sentences that don't put in how many of the people it applies to, and they've connected with what linguists call generic statements. There's now a lot of data, and philosophers are working with linguists and psychologists about this, to suggest that we really love thinking in stereotypes and we really love reporting our thoughts in these generic statements and the more we do it the more stereotypical our thinking goes it's relevant to media ethics because nobody ever thinks that the grammar of a headline has got any implications for knowledge but it does if you say it wrong people are going to get the wrong idea even in a case where you're trying to tell the truth and of course there's the background issue that normally you might not be trying to tell the truth you're trying to make a splash 
Thanks to Ray Langton for a philosopher's insight into some of the most difficult questions of contemporary politics. Now back to the news. We're going to have to return from the heady heights of philosophy to the dismal science of economics, because today is budget day. We're recording our discussion in the morning, but by the time this conversation is broadcast later today, George Osborne will have delivered his budget. I've got the newspapers in front of me today. We're still talking about the newspapers. And the headline in The Times that I'm just going to read to you now is a good old-fashioned headline, and it reads... Good times to roll with 10 billion extra for budget. So the question is, is there really room here for a giveaway budget, what's sometimes called sweeteners or bribes to the voters to tempt them into the ballot box and to get them to vote one way or the other? Helen, do you think actually that the Chancellor has the freedom to dish out the good times? I think paradoxically there is. If you looked at the objective economic position, you would not say, given the size of Britain's structural budget deficit and the fact that Britain has more than a trillion pounds worth of debt, that there would be a lot of freedom of manoeuvre. But those two things that I've just said don't particularly seem politically to matter. The perception has been created that there is political room in this budget for some tax cuts of some kind, and the question only being which tax cuts Osborne will choose. So you don't think that the recent better news about the British economy, the fact that growth is thought now to be going up relative to forecasts over the next couple of years, does actually create real as opposed to just political freedom for the Chancellor? It all depends on your time horizons. In the short term, yes, it does. But if you look at the basic problem that Britain has with its debt, like many other developed country economies, they're huge. You're talking about a state that has, if you include cost of the bank bailouts, nearly 150% of GDP in state debt. You would think that this is not a situation that can continue indefinitely. And yet the immediate pressure to do something about it and to get into a more sustainable fiscal position is not there at all. So Finbar, the old fashioned giveaway budget is just a gimmick. There are deep structural problems that this doesn't touch. Is it going to work? It probably will work. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is this distinction between a political budget and a real budget, the actual budget that we need to help the country to grow. I disagree with Helen a little because we're trying to compare very, very different things when we talk about the actual level of debt to the level of GDP. We're comparing what's called a stock to a flow. And historically, we're actually nowhere near historical levels of actual debt, and especially when you talk about the level of debt repayment. Osborne and the Conservatives have managed to do this fantastic smoke and mirrors where they say, it's the end of the world, you must let us fix it and slash the size of the state. And suddenly, just as we're coming to the election, no, no, it's all fine. The economy is going gangbusters and there's loads of stuff to give away. It's amazing to me that they're managing to turn on a sixpence and they're not actually getting hit for this. They've still got a significant lead in terms of the opinion polls as to who thinks that they're better at leading the economy. So just to be clear, which is the thing that you think is the smoke? That it's not the end of the world or that actually... It is close to the end of the world, and therefore they shouldn't be tossing money around like this. Um, we nearly destroyed the financial system through the financial crisis. But in terms of the conversation around the macroeconomic position, we're on the edge of the cliff and falling into a volcano doesn't hold true in the very, very long historical picture. And so the whole construct that's gone on over the last three, four years, to me, is smoke. And now it's been added to by further smoke saying, suddenly, magically, because we like inflation to be down so low, let's not even talk about the fact that we've got a target of 2%. We're going to say that something way off the 2% target is still good for us. We now are going to say we're going to be able to give a lot of things away. So just to come back to Helen, Finbar's saying it's not as bad as you just painted it. 
Is it as bad as he just painted it? It depends what historical time period you're comparing with. If you go back in the long term, historically, say, to the 18th century, then Britain's debt looks nothing in comparison. It's about half as a percentage of GDP. But, but we're that, not fighting a war against Exactly. Napoleon. But that was war debt. And it was war debt that was then repaid after the war happened. We're talking about debt that hasn't been repaid since partial repayment of a very small amount in the late 1990s or the early 2000s with no commitment to reduce this debt over time, which is completely different position than what the historical position was when there were high levels of debt. Finbar, are they going to be able to claw it back in time, do you think? We spoke about this at the start of this series. All of the polls still point towards a hung parliament and bar a massive shift. That's what's going to happen. And budgets do not produce a massive shift. You may get a little bounce, but you're not going to get the sort of shift that you're going to require, given the structure of voting patterns and given the structure of constituencies. We're looking at a hung parliament no matter what happens. So we don't know what's going to be in this budget. If it does turn out actually to be a complete disaster, we'll come back to it next week. Otherwise, we might move on. I want to finish with something else, something a bit different. This podcast is called Election. We're focusing on one particular election, the British general election. There are other elections going on in the world almost all the time. And a very important one was decided yesterday. That is, the final results are now in. And it turns out that in Israel, the incumbent government, which is a centre-right government, which was predicted to lose, and the polls consistently were saying that it would lose, has won. Not by a large margin, but has won. Benjamin Netanyahu is almost certainly going to remain in charge in Israel. And the centre-left opposition, which was predicted to win, has not won. It's been described as one of the nastiest campaigns in modern electoral history, although campaigns are often described like that. In fact, you can probably find one described like that almost every year for the past 100 years. But one of the campaigning strategies of the incumbents was to really push hard on the idea that it's a huge risk to change at a time of danger. Now, Israeli politics, very, very different from British politics. But Helen, do you think there's any parallels here at all about the return to incumbents when they really push hard on a message that it would be very risky to change horses? I think there's certainly something in that, and there's something in the fact that the exit polls, as well as the pre-polling, was wrong. I think in some ways, though, the most striking thing about it is the fact that at the end that Netanyahu was able to articulate a clear and simple message. It wasn't complicated. It tapped directly into a sense of existential risk that many Israeli citizens feel. He appealed to their deepest fears and he was able to win. In that sense, I don't think that there is a similar ploy, if you like, or message that Conservatives and David Cameron can articulate. And it's difficult to imagine David Cameron articulating that very forcefully. Precisely for some of the reasons that Finbar was talking about earlier, which is if this really is the end of the world, what are they doing with a frivolous budget? It's not the end of the world. The Israeli stuff, when they talk existential risk, it has some real purchase on people. Absolutely. The parallel, though, is is that there is a similar simple message that the Conservatives and David Cameron can articulate, and that is, do you want Edward Miliband in Downing Street? And that is a, a question that will focus people's minds in the same way in which Netanyahu's ruling out a Palestinian state focused some people's minds. Chris, do you think there are any parallels at all between British politics and Israeli politics? Not really. I think just to look at the electoral system brings out uh, the enormous disanalogies that the Israeli system is a highly proportional system. Mr. Netanyahu has to bargain with small parties, often religious parties, that have representation in the Knesset. We're going to have a hung parliament. There are going to be small parties. But the dynamics of how you translate 
votes into seats and then how the parties will operate in coalition negotiations seems to be to be very different. And our small parties will not be religious parties? Uh, they will not. Fimbar, do you want to stand up for the, my initial thought, which is that actually there is something in this that does have some parallel with British politics. And it, and it precisely is that thought that the polls could be wrong because they do tend to overstate the appeal of the opposition at difficult times, right up to the point where people actually vote. There may be something in it. Um, we've seen previous elections where we thought there was going to be a change of government and there wasn't, most famously with Labour in the early 90s. I think the key here, though, is that we have no message of fear because the Conservatives want to tell a message that their economic plan is working. That great phrase, the long-term economic plan, they want to make sure that people stay on message and say that the, there are sunny uplands ahead. It's not a message of everything will go to hell in a handbasket. It is a message of we're on a journey upwards and the sunshine is coming. Let's keep going towards that. And that does seem to be the fundamental difference between, say, British politics and Israeli politics, which is we're always told to win an election in this country, you have to have a positive message. Doom and gloom won't do it. Turns out in Israel, doom and gloom does do it. I'm not sure you're right, David, in that doom and gloom doesn't work in British politics. I'd say that doom and gloom worked pretty well for the Conservatives in 1992. This was a, a deep recession that the election took place under, and they were able to win with a negative message about Labour's unsuitability as they presented it for office. Yeah, and I think there are clear parallels in that respect between the 1992 election and this election because of the leadership question. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all our contributors, our regular news panel, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey and Chris Brooke, our guest, Ray Langton, and Hannah Critchlow and Francis Durnley for production. Join us again next week when we have two guests for the price of one. I'll be talking to former Conservative Party leader Michael Howard about the legacy of Margaret Thatcher in British politics. And I'll also be in conversation with one of Britain's leading pollsters, Stephen Shakespeare, the chief executive of YouGov, to ask him what the polls say and how we should read them. If you want to get in touch with this podcast, please do contact us via Twitter. Our hashtag is hashtag election podcast. Let us know any questions or comments you have and we'll come back to you. My name is David Runciman. This is the Cambridge University podcast, Election. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like 
you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>